Ta-da! This is Barrett Klein, animal behaviorist, entomologist from UWL, and I have the pleasure of being Song Chen, the normal podcaster interviewer for the day, and double pleasure of having Dr. Sean Carroll coming from Maryland, University of Maryland, and serves several powerful functions that I'd like to explore in different ways. <laughs> One is as vice president of science education through Howard Hughes Medical Institute, right. a professor of evolutionary and developmental biology, molecular biology, University of Maryland, many accolades, honors uh, his way, a member of National Academy of Sciences, dot, dot, dot. And I'd like to start first by shaking your hand. Thanks. But let's also, yeah. Professor Emeritus, oh. University of Wisconsin-Madison. Madison. 31 years on Ma at Madison. Dun, dun, dun. Raised my kids here in Wisconsin. So, so you've come back. I've come back home to, to the green and gold. Home? To Welcome. the green and gold. <laughs> you know which color that is. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. And I wanted to start with a story. And the reason being, stories are the primary vehicle for conveying information, complex, simple information. We can go into details about that, the science behind that, etc. But we'll start with the story of you and how you discovered and found biology is your passion and education to complement it. Let's start with biology. So I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, on the edge of Lake Erie. Um, never swam in Lake Erie. Never fished in Lake Erie. Never <laughs> ate anything that came out of Lake Erie. It was it was bad old days, and yeah. they're not necessarily much better right now. Mm -hmm. um, but on the shores of Lake Erie, there were a lot of snakes. Mm -hmm. And one of my neighborhood friends took me snake hunting probably when I was about 10. Uh -huh. And that was addictive. And I think it was... Uh, and, I, you know, so I became a log flipper. In that case, you're also flipping plywood and, you know, roofing shingles and stuff like that because snakes would hide under all sorts of things. But it's that thrill of discovery. It's the thrill of the hunt. Uh -huh. you, don't know, you don't know what you're going to find or if you're going to find anything. And then, voila, boom, there's something there. And so whether it was especially like snakes, frogs, salamanders, that was kind of my stuff. And there wasn't a lot of, um, you know mammals to go look for in Toledo, I mean, you know, squirrels and maybe a deer. Yeah. So the reptiles were pretty good. And then because I could bring the reptiles inside and I, my parents let me have, you know, aquaria with snakes in them and stuff. Well, then, you know, I had them year round and I love the body patterns. You know, I love the, the colors, the stripes, the speckles, all this sort of stuff. So I'm sure that's what was all at work when I decided to study kind of how animal bodies are made and patterned. So ingredient one, accessibility of the organisms, in part. Yeah, nature in some form. Ingredient two, the aesthetics, the yeah. patterns. Yep. And how did you develop into a developmental biologist? I uh, took a detour. Um, so undergrad was sort of my first, well, undergrad was my first exposure to indoor laboratory biology. I worked in a microbiology lab, had a great mentor. Um, you know, just learning how to do experiments, um, bacteriology type experiments. And um, in the summer, got a chance through connections to work in immunology up in Boston. And immunology was really exciting. What an incredible system in the body. And those were the days where there were still un, you know, there were mist unsolved mysteries in, in immunity. And so I decided to get a PhD in immunology. And that really made me a wet bench indoor molecular type biologist. But this was in Boston. Mm -hmm. A bit of a story here. But in Boston, one of the advantages of being in Boston, one of the things I took advantage of was on the metro, the T in Boston, it's called the T, I could hop between all sorts of schools, MIT, Harvard Med, Harvard Cambridge, Tufts downtown where I was. So I would just keep an eye on the seminar lists as a graduate student. And I would hop and go hear talks. And I kind of got a extended education by just going to talks on things that interested me. Paleontology, human origins, started to see some developmental biology in the early 1980s. And um, I, it was that appetite of just enjoying biology of all sorts of kinds that through a bit of 
distillation, et cetera, I, I, I got hooked by the question of how, to for, how does form evolve? And I got enough sophistication to figure out that the, only, the best path onto that was to first ask, how is form made? That's, that's development, right? So development is the making of an individual from you know, an, an egg and that whole process of building a creature. And if you want to know how different creatures evolve, well, you got to know how they're built differently. Mm -hmm. So that was the very simple logic. Mm -hmm. I couldn't say much more than that logic because in those early days, um, we didn't know much. Right. So that was the big mystery. And you were enticed initially uh, or later by Drosophila melanogaster fruit flies? I was enticed. This is one of the talks I heard as a, as a uh, graduate student. Just starting to hear about these genes that when mutated, put like the wrong body part in the wrong place yeah. on a fly's body. And you just thought, oh man, what is that? Legs in place of antennae. And Eyes on knees. Yes, <laughs> extra pair of wings. Well, these must be the things, these are the things that really matter. And, and yet we had no way to even think about those. What are those mm -hmm. things doing? Mm -hmm. And because, especially among arthropods, the differences among arthropods, the most obvious ones, are in the number of segments and what those segments bear. How many legs? How many wings? Um, the mouth parts, all that sort of stuff. So you, when you start to look at um, arthropods, like that game Cootie, you know, where you, where you yeah, have all those yeah. assembled parts, and it, they seem so modular, and you're like, well, wh what's the logic here? Well, those genes must be a passport to that logic. And so I decided in, in graduate school, even though I was getting a PhD in immunology, it was in late in my PhD, I was like, I'm gonna work on these genes yeah. or I'm not gonna work on anything. Huh. I was I was I was hell bent. Yeah. And so I started talking to people and uh, found my way to a, a, a lab that was just starting out in Colorado with a fellow named Matt Scott who uh, you know he was just starting his own lab and you know he's hearing from me who has no experience working with flies and um, the great opportunity there was that it was like the buffet table was set there were it was all mystery but he had at least physically isolated the genes that were involved and I had to figure out how they worked what they did and all that sort of stuff so that's a long answer that's a journey but the, I think the general aspect of that is getting gripped by a question or gripped by a mystery and I just think how lucky I was that it's you know some of that's also timing where where is science when you're trying to form maybe some idea of what might be a long road for you I, I knew I knew I was looking at decades right to do this work and you know I had really still one of the most profound mysteries of life which is you know how do you build a complex creature and how do different kinds of creatures evolve and that that dual mystery was was what I wanted to chase and and man you know if I've been a lucky soul yeah yeah are we getting closer to understanding for example um, primitive traits in say the evolution of arthropods if we look at insects and we look at primitively um, apterous non-winged yeah. insects yeah like jumping bristle tails yeah there you've got something weird because along the abdominal segments you've got hints of what might be the relics of segments of legs yeah, yeah. so if you could convert the haltiers the hind wings the yeah. gyroscopic balancing yeah. organs of yep. flies into wings at least yeah. in fruit flies is that like a point mutation just well it, it can be a fairly simple mutation yeah. to to activate a gene in a wrong place or to knock out a gene in the right place yeah that's can we make a shrimp like Jumping bristle tail or other insect, where we see the abdominal limbs that we presume pretty are close. Yeah, you're you're right to to zero in on these these arthropod bodies have all sorts of doodads, you know, mm -hmm. sticking out of them. And if you look at the crustacean world, you know, they've got all sorts of appendages and yeah. you know sometimes in big numbers, with you know slightly different um, anatomies and and functions. You know, you can you can look at a brine shrimp and probably find you know, like 10 different appendages there 10 or 11 I'm not don't don't quote me on that it's just it's just a lot right yeah. so it, it they, they, they're like Swiss army knives right it's like it's like on every segment is a different utensil you know for swimming for dispensing eggs or whatever it might be or for walking along you know a, a sediment you know at the bottom of a river or things like that so 
the interchangeability, the convertibility, genetic interconvertibility of these structures has been demonstrated in, in the lab with mutations or by manipulating genes specifically that um, changing the number or kind of appendage um, really is genetically kind of simple in the lab. Evolutionarily, it's not as easy to explain because it doesn't necessarily happen in one step, right? You can make it happen in the lab by doing something that is kind of radical and probably not so great for animal fitness. But evolution sculpts these bodies with different numbers of things, you know, over more generations. And, um, you know, I think we're, we've had a pretty good look on the side of the hood of how that works. So many directions I want to take this. One would be just a simple one in the fruit flies with that second pair of wings, yeah. which most other insect groups possess, yeah. are they functional at all? Yeah. I mean, functional is, is like, for flight, yeah, for balance, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, yeah. They, they matter in the air, the okay. haltiers. Oh, not the haltiers. When they're reverted to a second oh, pair of actual wings. Oh, a second pair of actual wings. wings. Are they innervated? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. Never studied those animals myself. Okay. But, um You know, I've looked at those creatures and, and you know, shaken them out of bottles. Uh, they're, they're not too, uh, they're not too impressive as flyers. Let's put gotcha. it that way. So I got a feeling. I think there's a bit of circuitry missing because to work as wings, they can't just be wings. They've, you've got to have all the plumbing, right, to the nervous system, et cetera. And I'm not sure if they're plumbed up all the way. Ernst Teckel's famous phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. Yeah. So the idea that if you look at the development of organisms, it can suggest how they might relate to other organisms evolutionarily. Yeah. Does that hold a lot of weight and water today? It, it's, it's more the exception than the rule, mm -hmm. but it was a good intuition for 1860. Mm -hmm. uh, Heckel, who was a huge admirer of Darwin, mm -hmm. um, and Darwin was pointing out in his writings that he thought embryology gave some of the most important support to the theory of evolution because you could see similarities in early embryos that you know were striking when the adults were so different so he could see that common ancestry at earlier stages say in vertebrates you know earlier stages of, of embryonic development and that made him more confident of his interpretation that these you know different branches of life had descended from a common ancestor mm -hmm. often adult anatomy was misleading it, it you know it it conceals those connections between different lineages so heckel had the right kind of instinct but literally it's not because development evolves in all sorts of kind of um in all sorts of ways, so that it doesn't, early embryonic development can be to totally replaced in one type of creature from another creature and not resemble each other, and that will throw you off. So very similar creatures could have very different early embryonic development, you know, like the earliest early stages. So it's not, it's not a law, it's a, it's a tendency at times. <laughs> so it, it can be helpful, but yeah. it's not necessarily universally it's not, predictable. It's not recapit the strict interpretation that basically to get it, you know, in getting a new form, you have to march through all the preceding forms yeah. and just add on. That that literal interpretation just breaks down all over the place. And it's, so it's sort of been discarded. As an intuition that there's a close link between development and evolution, and that you can see in development don't worry so much about the step-by-step -step recapitulation. It's all like ontogeny kind of reflects phylogeny. Okay. It would be sort of a safer way to put it. Oh, I like that qualification. Yeah. How about... Copyright pending. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you and I belong to phylum chordata. Yeah. And there are five uh, homologous traits or, um, say, shared derived characters that typically define that phylum. One is these pharyngeal gill slits. Yeah. That would be an example that... Heckel looked yeah. at and yeah. others have examined over time. So leads to another powerful way to look at biology, and that's the origin versus the maintenance of a trait. Yeah. So some things vanish, right? And maybe they originally evolved for one adaptive reason, if they're adaptations, and have secondarily been maintained for a different reason. Right? Does that play a role oftentimes in what you think about and what you research? Well, let me back up a little bit to say that, you know, there was a century and a half, maybe more, if you go back to maybe the turn of the 18th century. There's a lot of anatomy 
you know, anatomy was a dominant discipline. In Germany and France? Yeah, I mean, Europe, yeah, European. It, uh, it, 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 was, it was big in Europe. And then embryology comes along, and so people are studying embryos, et cetera. But if you go all the way to the 1980s, okay, the mind-blowing discovery, this, the discovery that I got to witness, if not participate in, was that these different creatures had so much in common genetically and that anatomy had often misled us. I mean, misled us at a huge scale where, you know, things as totally different as flies and mice share common sets of genes in building their bodies. I mean... Which was wholly unpredicted. Not only wholly unpredicted. I mean, I do not know anyone who would claim they predicted anything like that. And you could imagine some post hoc claims you know, yeah, <laughs> being, right, right. being made later. Like, oh, I anticipated that. I, I anticipated that. that. <laughs> in fact, when it, when it first started emerging, you know, biologists in print were gra just grappling with what could it mean. And of course, it, it's, you know, it's a reflection of deep common ancestry in the animal kingdom. So we're so misled. If you look at a fly, right, with its wings are just you know, two cells thick, and you look at its hollow legs, and you know, you know what bug eyes look like, right? And you compare that with, you know, our limbs and our eyes, you'd say, this is completely independent stuff. Or you look at the way we're organized into a head and a thorax and an abdomen and, you know, in, in, head to tail, and you're like, sets of genes that are clearly close evolutionary relatives of each other sculpting all that stuff. Biologists, I mean, it was it was startling. Huh. It, at first, you know, like, the, the skeptic is like, well, you know, uh, can't, no, you know, try to maybe, <laughs> maybe, you know, I know there was there was first an interpretation nope. when you looked at, at some of the sequences within these genes, it was like, well, those might be like nuclear localization signals that move the protein to the nucleus, as opposed to you know, a signature of, of a domain that's been around for over 500 million years and yeah. used in these sets of genes. So, so people wrestled with it. And, and then, you know, it just became incredibly exciting. And in fact, my path pretty much into communicating science was that by being a member of this community and making some of these discoveries about similarities, for example, between limbs and, and trying to interpret these things and interpret things that my colleagues were finding about deep similarities among eyes or bodies or whatever, um, I just kept getting asked to talk about this to all sorts of audiences and journalists. And, and that really is the accidental sort of catalyst of, you know, we were having these interesting discoveries. I mean, I, I happened to, you know, discover genes involved in building butterfly eye spots. And I thought, well, I hope somebody might publish this or read it. You know, only to come home and see a 10-minute photo essay on the evening news on <laughs> should we understand the secrets of beauty? And there's the there's the cover of the journal with my article in it. I'm like, what's going on? You know, so something about pattern, something about body, something about these deep, sort of hidden um, commonalities captured people's imaginations. They just wanted interpretation and they wanted to explore that and so you know we were we were right there we you know we were the the kind of molecular spelunkers kind of finding this stuff out and that led to public speaking and documentary films that i was in and book writing and and more and more and it and it, it, it all comes from that it all comes from that that discovery and for the reading or the listening audience and maybe a watching audience i'm going to list um the books I know about that Dr. Sean Carroll has written, including Endless Forms Most Beautiful, Brave Genius, Into the Jungle, Remarkable Creatures, The Story of Life, Great Discoveries in Biology, and The Serengeti Rules, which is the subject of tonight's talk at UW Lacrosse. Yeah. I should tell you a story about that. Please. So, so there was a book before Endless Forms Most Beautiful, and that was... I, I, I was I start people started asking if I would write something and I, and the appeal was I had a lot of conversations on airplanes et cetera or 
you know, talking to the neighbors, you know, what do you do? What does this mean? It's, I thought, somebody should write this stuff down because, you know, you end up repeating it a lot and maybe you should organize your thoughts. But, I, but some of the advice I got was, you know, first kind of maybe write it down for the audience you know, which is maybe for scientists and students. And so I wrote a book just before Endless Forms. And that was like getting the muscles worked out. And then Endless Forms is written for a general audience. And um, when I it, – it's a mystery to get into book publishing or book writing and you get hints you can from you know people you might have met who've written a book, and you get connected with agents, and you check things. You know, and the first thing my prospective and now longtime agent asked was, "Well, you, you think you, know, you think there's a second book in there anywhere? You know, in your head?" And I'm like, "I got to tell you, man, I don't know. This is kind of this is what I know, and it's like you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm pouring I'm pouring out, <laughs> I'm emptying the bucket into this book." Uh-huh. The ink was not even dry on endless forms when I started a next book. Wow. There was just something like something got tapped and it just started, you know, the faucet started running, <laughs> which is kind of dangerous because you sort of hope maybe that first bit was high quality and the rest now were just trickles and, 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 and dregs. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and endless forms, most beautiful, you know, got me writing for general audiences and then, uh, yeah, there's a book called Making the Fittest right on the heels of that. And then Remarkable Creatures is sort of when I feel I tried to become more of a storyteller, uh, telling stories about some of the great adventures and expeditions in, in, in biology. And that's pretty much been the theme now is that, I, you know, my challenge, I think, is not so much taking people deep into the science, but keeping them engaged through story. And that, that's been an evolution. Can I ask you about that gray zone between fact-filled textbook, the conventional textbook, and a popular science book that really is meant like Cosmos by Carl Sagan to reach a big audience, right? Yeah. And in that gray zone, we could pick dozens of examples. I'll toss out a couple, like Bernd Heinrich has written books that are very different one to the yeah. next in terms yeah. of seemingly what audience they're trying to reach. Yeah. The intended audience of survival, survival strategies yeah. by Raghavendra Gedekar, and looking at kin selection there. Yeah. That's a complex topic yeah. that he, ma- he, he really made accessible to wide audience. Now, it's a key word. You often learn that, <laughs> what is it, for each equation, the uh, number of books that will sell decreases by a certain amount, <laughs> yes, right? There, now, there are probably deadly things, yeah. Where do you find that gray area? And in terms of, say, some of your books play in this really interesting middle ground where you eloquently discuss ideas based in hardcore ecology, for example, or evolutionary biology, but then slip in a graph. And how does, say, (laughs) your agent, your publisher, the audience intended or otherwise respond to that? Yeah. Well, y- you never know which sales you lost, <laughs> you know? So um, you're, you described it as a balance. You used a key word, which was accessible. Because I think that if there's really new science that's revelatory, that's, that's going to excite you as the writer, and that's your opportunity to reach the reader and say, hey, here's a way of looking at nature, or here's a way of looking at something, and maybe scientists ideas were turned upside down yeah mm-hmm. those are those are the, the most fun discoveries you know it what really makes a discovery is it's unexpected mm-hmm. right if we find out something we already expected we're kind of like, okay we kind of expected that but so science kind of moves forward by the unexpected it's like you think something works like this and it turns out ah, you got it upside down and you take a while it takes a while for you to figure out you got it upside down and you're like oh so that's what it is taking the reader on that journey is what you're trying to do the story science the process of science is, is naturally a narrative because it is, you know, a bunch of clues, not sure how they're connected, false leads, you know, um, and then maybe things start to drop into place. And maybe you're like, oh, wait a second, out of all that fog, something takes shape. And this is, I think, the, the biggest difference. You talked about sort of books that are information oriented. I think the hardest thing, and I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to 
beat myself up over too much over the last, you know, 15 years or so, which is, you know, if, if, if a reader doesn't have the fundamentals to dig into something that's a bit information dense, I sort of figure they're, they're going to kind of fall off the train. You're going to lose them, and that, that's a shame. So there's this judgment call going on in the way. You're not trying to oversimplify. You're not, quote, dumbing it down. It's just like only give enough that you need to get the aha. You want to get the aha. That's, that, you owe that to the reader. I mean, you know, they're investing their time. You know, what, are you just going to go blah, 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 blah? No, it's like you're, you're building towards some, some aha. So any writer out there, or any aspiring writer out there, okay, here you go. Here's what I wish somebody had told me 20 years Good. ago. Lay it on us. I most of the time try to start, I, I, I figure out stories from sort of like the moment of discovery and work my way back. Because I know that's going to be the, the payoff. If there's a clear moment. Now, that's kind of what makes it a story. If yeah. there's something found by 17 different people in you know, 16 different labs. It's, 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 it's quest. It's, you know, it's, it's the quest and it's the, it's the, the clues dropping into place sort of thing. And then it's bang. If, if there's a, now, not all discoveries are bang. Does things might be kind of a slow unfolding, but I think that's the journey you got to be on that science naturally is a narrative. So you give it a narrative arc. And, I, and, and when I just sort of start messing with a story, I sort of know my destination, which is going to be what I think is the payoff point. I've probably been attracted to the story because I was like, oh, man, you know, awesome. How did we get to that? Or how did they get to that? And that's really different than saying, well, you know. To understand how genes work, you need to know. Blah 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 blah. And it's like a parts list, right? I mean, it, to me, the difference is when you talk about information like a textbook. That to me is either the instruction manual or the parts list for like you know a piece of furniture. You know how many screws, how many <laughs> you know how many washers, how many bolts, right. etc. Versus narrative, which is you know the how you get to the thing. And that's the difference. And, and scientists, because I, we just have been so burdened by the instinct or impulse that I've just got to get all this information in my head out to you. And if you had it, you know, you're, you're good. You can sort it. You can sort it. <laughs> Less is more. Less is more. And our brains work in story. Uh -huh. Stories, they connect cause and effect. They connect events over time. We need a place, if you're giving me all this information, you need a place to kind of file it as it's coming, and you need that, 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 that the connect the dot kind of structure. You just can't be pushed a lot of vocabulary and density. It, it's, and that's why following the trail of discovery is just a natural way to learn science. I hadn't thought about it before this discussion, but say, best-selling Watson's Double Helix. Yeah. He basically has the spoiler in the title. Yeah. That, that is the quest. Yeah, it's we the quest. We know the result. Yeah. So here's the process. And the story, what what, what Watson wanted to do, um, it's right there. Well, I've certainly seen an interview, and I, I, I know Jim Watson, and I've talked to him a good number of times. Um, he took that book on as a challenge. He wanted to know whether he could write a good story. You it's clear from interview. He wrote he, that his two greatest uh, passions or, or um, what he was most excited about, his accomplishments, were the writing of molecular biology and the writing of Double Helix. Of Double Helix, yeah. yeah. Um, he wanted to know if he, could, if he could tell a story. And, of course, all the failure, all the missteps is in Double Helix, right? So yeah. you read about the Double Helix in a textbook, and you think, A's, you know, G's, and C's. they got it. <laughs> they got it. You read the real story. And it's uh, actually the way I, I've, I've retold the story once in, in one book. I tell it, uh, if you know the, the board game Clue, mm. right? You had all these different people trying to Trigger figure this thing out, right? With a candlestick. And they all had different clues, and only the ones who worked together figured it out. Yeah. The, 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 the solo practitioners had a clue, even a vital clue, but they couldn't connect it to anything else if they didn't communicate with the other players. 
one, I think the most compelling, intriguing quirk of serendipity that appears in Double Helix that comes to my mind was one person who happened to be in the lab who looked at what Crick and Watson had available and said, wait, you're taking this from a textbook? That, the the bases the wrong are isomer, wrong. Right? Yeah, the bases were wrong. The wrong tautomer of bases. Uh. And, and so the protons were in the wrong place. Uh. And so when Watson was trying to make base pairs, he was trying to see how could the bases come together. There's no idea how they, these bases have come, like with like, or maybe they went kind of vertically, right? Where were the bonds that could hold this thing together? And he didn't know how many strands. And he had the wrong chemical structures. Huh. And there would just happen to be another, actually uh, this had to be an American, I remember his name's called Jerry Donahue, who said, you know, that's wrong. He copied him out of a textbook. When he made the cardboard cutouts with the right bases, then he got A with T, C with G, and they'd stack, and he was like, bingo. And the base pairing rules, that is, you know, that is what others, and, and this is an amazing part of the double helix story. The base ratio was figured out by a chemist named Erwin Shargaff. Shargaff was a great chemist. Shargaff's rules. He was in prime position to make this discovery. Huh? Okay, can I add this? Yeah, please. He was an unpleasant fellow. Okay. <laughs> We've, so, like Linus for Pauling, disclosure, we've already mentioned a couple of unpleasant characters. <laughs> yes, uh, anyway. but but Shargaff, I guess, was unpleasant enough that when Linus Pauling, the great chemist who was also mm. trying to crack the the structure of DNA, I think they found themselves on a boat together on the way back from a meeting, and they didn't talk together. They didn't, wow. they didn't speak. Um, and so he, he Shargaff was in prime position to figure out these 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 base pairing rules, and it really was the base pairing rules. And then um, Rosalind Franklin, who had the best um, X-ray crystallographic structures of of DNA, wasn't taking the model building approach that Crick and Watson were. She had these great pictures, but she really they were trying to build physical 3D models of of mm -hmm. of. Um, the chemicals, and only by trial and error, because they came up with some real monstrosities that they got laughed at, sure, and actually, and, yeah, and got shut down because they were sort of infringing territory and screwing it up. Mm -hmm. So, it, it's just amazing that spark, the difference between having a clue and making a discovery, and and that story in itself can just be you know studied as a classic example of of how it really works. And so that brings up a few issues. One is um, who writes the successes of science for the general <laughs> audience. Another is the power of visualizing science. Yeah. Uh, let me. Uh, there are several others, but let's start with um, who tells the story. And yeah. I was reading a book by Adrian Wenner, and Wenner challenged Carl von Frisch with the idea of how honeybees communicate. Yeah how they advertise a distant source, whether it be food, a home, water. And the Waggle Dance, which Carl von Frisch discovered in the 1940s, got a Nobel Prize for, shared it in 1973, showed that you have an encoded in this dance distance and direction to an advertised site. Now, the Waggle Dance isn't always used for that purpose inside a nest of bees. Adrian Wenner, looked at the olfactory component, saying, if a bee's out there, she's just going to home in yeah. on the odor. Yeah. And that's it. And this waggle dance, it's good for something, but not necessarily for that. But the point I want to make is that in the beginning of his book, uh, Anatomy of a Controversy, he makes this, I think, really interesting, introspective argument that if you're a winner, it's very rare that you write about winning and what was involved in that process. And he mentioned Watson as an yeah. exception. Because you move on other things and you're building that lab and continue the research or you go into administration or whatever. If you're a loser, you're brushed under the rug. And he, he confessed that he was the loser in this deal and yet he's writing a book. So he's yeah. an exception. Yeah. Thoughts? Well, it's a it's really cool observation. I, you know, I th yeah, I think you're right. A lot of the winners don't stop to write. It's not necessarily their instinct. It might also be um, self-conscious. It's sort of like, what kind of, you know, <laughs> what kind of person sort of, you know, writes their, you know, writes their victorious tale. Uh, so um, 
there's that. And I think that because often the either the loser or the person that might come along to at least overturn some of the prior wisdom has had a tougher climb because they've had to overcome, especially if the, if the prior work was very um, appealingly sort of straightforward, or you know, maybe surprising, but also appealingly sort of straightforward. And you're like, yeah, but it actually doesn't explain the thing. And, mm-hmm. and you, you've got to climb because, you know, specialists and non-specialists, et cetera, have by then sort of adopted that paradigm. Mm. And textbooks might have it as well. Mm. And so we don't like exceptions that upset our tidy mm-hmm. stories. So that first discovery is a story. Mm-hmm. And we don't necessarily want to give up some of our stories. Mm. But, and that's like that's just saying the, the general audience, the, the, the new discoverer, the new researcher, you know, finds some new piece of truth. They want to tell their story. But they really realize they're kind of being blocked out. They're being overshadowed by the, the, the pre-existing story. That's a, that's a tricky position to be in. And, and it's also um, sometimes hard to tell the difference between a very legitimate overthrow and a crank. Yeah, good point. You know, there's a lot of folks who miss boats and write cranky things. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so. And tempted to continue along this line, but I'm also tempted to go in the direction that you highlight in both your book, The Serengeti Rules, and the documentary that's based on it, but really is a sliver of it, because there's so much more in the book that yeah. couldn't be covered in right. a 53-minute documentary. And that is this... You could call it a revolution in science, in ecology in this particular instance, where discoveries made initially by Bob Payne in an intertidal pool flinging sea stars away as top-level predators have this debilitating, destructive, collapsing effect on this web where the biodiversity is reduced to what? One thing? You know, just at least to a naive observer a couple of things, yeah. right? And then that's carried over to uh, marine sy- other marine yeah. systems and eventually to terrestrial systems with the so-called keystone species right. apparently playing a key role. Right. Not necessarily, and keystone refers to arches where the keystone, a literal stone, yeah. faces the least pressure, but if removed, causes the whole the arch to collapse. collapse. That's where he came up with it, yeah. Yeah, so... Bob Payne saw the sea star as that keystone yeah. species. Yeah. And we can look at wolves. But I want to talk with you about revolutions in science and turning over dogma, and that eventually, ultimately, potentially becoming mainstream science. But also, it'd be interesting to discuss that core concept of the keystone species. Yeah. To some, that top-level predator could be the keystone species, like the lion or wolf. Yeah. To some, it could be the beaver or the alligator that changes the environment. Right. To others, it could be the herbivore, like the wildebeest or a leafcutter ant or something yep. like that. Yeah. So a couple things. Um, first, just generally about science, which is there are different thoughts about what science is all about. So I'll just confess what I'm into. I, I think... I think we're on a quest for generalities. That doesn't mean laws, especially in biology. It just means general rules. Mm-hmm. Because, I, and this, I remember the paper, something I read in graduate school, the infinitude of particulars. All right, that, I like the sound of that. That that's, that's the danger in biology. Like, I mean, there's so many species doing all their little so many species things. You have an infinitude of particulars. And you're like, gosh, how do you find out any general property, truth, rule from all that? Mm-hmm. And if you're searching for generalities, then the thing is if you find something. So Bob Payne did a couple things that were unusual. Well, one thing he did that was unusual for his day is he did an experiment. Mm-hmm. A lot of ecology was observational. Mm-hmm. But he wanted some confined system where he could do something, in this case, remove starfish in one part of it and leave them alone in another part and see the difference. But the results were astonishing. He never would have predicted this collapse. And uh. he knew, you know, he had found ecological gold. That's a quote <laughs> that I think we have him on camera saying. And, but, of course, the response of the, commu- of the 
scientific community would be, you know, that's a tide pool on the coast of Washington. Right. Uh, okay, starfish in that peculiar little weirdo community, you take them out, something happens. How, how is that, a, you know, is that generalizable at all? And I'm not even sure that question was being asked. Hmm. You're right. It, it's people are exploring all sorts of pieces of ecology at that time, and you're just you're just describing systems at the time. You know what's what's you know, what's what's in a freshwater river? What's what's in a tropical forest? Yeah, right. It's yeah. a lot of ecology is is you know let's find out all the inhabitants right, how they work together. Let alone that something has a disproportionate effect on the whole community. Well, that how would you find that out? Well, you found out because Bob found. And he searched for it. He really was on the look for it. He, he, he had an intentional idea that he wanted to manipulate a piece of nature and test what predators did. Because he suspected, inspired somewhat by his teachers, that predators were not just sort of like ornaments atop the food chain that kind of ate a little meat every now and then, but that they could actually be driving the system from their position in the food chain. And when he gets this result with the starfish, he's realizing, wait a second, this community collapses without the predator. And it takes him then, you know, other workers, other researchers working in different parts of the world and in different types of systems to start to see these outsized effects. The next big one was the sea otter and kelp forests in the Aleutian Islands. And it, it turned our, our, our thinking upside down. In fact, turned that researcher named Jim Estes, his thinking up down, upside down, because he, he told Bob Payne he wanted to understand, well, how does this kelp forest support so many otters? And Payne says, I think you're thinking about this in the wrong direction. How does the, what do the otters affect on the kelp forest? Yeah. And the idea is that without the otters, there was no kelp forest because they controlled the herbivores that would otherwise raise the kelp forest. And that was an interesting example where while Estes couldn't conduct, an, say, a manipulative experiment by killing off the sea otters, he could go to places in the Aleutian Islands where they didn't exist and they, found sea otters. Yeah, changes. and they had not recovered. In other words, they had actually been killed off in the, in the fur trade in the uh, eight, uh, 19th and early 20th century. But there were places where they'd come back and places where they hadn't. So, yeah, he had kind of a natural experiment of recovery in some place and not others. So... Um, but the general thing there is that what Payne had was a couple things. He did an experiment, and he had a really simple but striking result. Mm. And I thought, that's the beginning of something. And a lot of times, if I sort of look through biology, you know, I think the art of our business is to find the simplest example of the phenomenon you want to understand. If you look at success stories, the fruit fly, mm -hmm. right? That's a complex body mm -hmm. in, that, in that tiny, tiny little thing. And you can fit you know, hundreds of them in a, in a milk bottle and do all sorts of manipulations. And, and they grow fast. And you, you know, we've discovered so much about genes and how they work from this little fly. And that um, cleverness of getting a piece of biology to work for you it, that, the, really, the success stories of, of discovering biology are just, you know, littered with examples of people that said, hey, I, I think this thing here might, you know, might teach us something, and, they, and, and it can, you know, launch some, some revolutions. And you have made huge impacts in terms of regulatory mechanisms at the molecular level and thought about them at different scales. Different levels of analysis. <laughs> yeah, we're diving into we're diving into a, a green book right now. But what happened was I've worked I worked in developmental biology and in this spin out evolutionary developmental biology. So developmental biology is just sort of how you build a creature, and then the spin out is how do you build different kinds of creatures. Yeah. Well, the big conceptual um, conclusion, really drawn from that work, is that you know everything's regulation. Lots of animals have very similar sets of genes, but they use them differently. And that use means they're regulated differently. They're turned on and off in different places and at different times in a different choreography. And that builds different bodies. Mm -hmm. So I've done a lot of work on sort of regulatory logic. So often when you start finding things that are part of a regulatory system, you know, these are wired kind of a little bit like electrical circuits. And 
you find, oh, I think A does this to B. And then you find out, oh, wait, there's something between A and B. We'll call that Z. And it's actually A does something to Z, which does something to B. And as you build out these circuits, you're like, oh, what's the logic? Well, A actually like negatively controls Z, which in turn negatively controls B. So when you kind of look at it from above, it looks like A positively controls B. So you have a lot of like double negative logic and all this sort of stuff. And I'd been doing this on genetic circuits for quite a while. Um, uh, <laughs> yes. I don't want to give you the number of years. And I read Jim Estes' work on the sea otters, and I said, I've seen that very logic. Otters negatively control the number of sea urchins, which negatively control the amount of kelp. So the reason why otters are necessary for the kelp forest is that they keep the sea urchin population down. So essentially, otters positively regulate kelp by, by negatively controlling a negative factor on kelp. If everybody follows that, it's a double negative. And to me, double negatives are like ahas because you're like, ow, that's the relationship. And I'd seen all these double negative relationships in the deep machinery of, of genetic circuits. But here's, you know, double negative works by eating. You know, otters, right. otters eat urchins, urchins eat kelp, and by otters eating those urchins, the kelp flourishes. And I'm like, I've seen that logic. And so I wanted to know how widespread is that logic. And then this whole branch of ecologists had seen all this kind of double negative logic, which is or orchestrates these things called trophic cascades, um, regulation through the food chain. And I was like, man, how come I didn't know that? And I'm talking... Uh, 2015. So, okay, so I'm a professional biologist. I've been around biology since a while. Yeah. <laughs> 1977, maybe, huh. as a student. I was a student. The year Star Wars came out. Yeah. Okay, there you go. The, the, the year Voyager was launched, how about in, oh, right. in the solar system? And the first object to, to leave, go beyond the helio? To leave, this, to leave the solar system, yeah. How about that? Isn't that great? Wow. And now they're both out there. The oh, that's just got, right. Yeah. And actually, you may not know this, but so uh, I was involved in making a film called The Farthest on, on Voyager. Oh, so I'll no, make this plug, ah. which is go look up The Farthest. I will. It's a heck of a story Excellent. of people building and flying this machine. And it won the 2018 Emmy for Best Documentary. Hey, so fantastic. Anyway. So anyway, uh, shameless plug. You'll find it streaming right now on our platform called Biointeractive because it just came off Netflix in November. Great. But oh no, you also find it on PBS.org. Great. Sorry, it's, it's streaming Great. on PBS too. Sorry Perfect. about that. Anyway, it was originally uh, premiered on PBS. The farthest. Here's this is a good deal. I'll just make anybody listens in, which is, if you don't like the farthest, I'll never make a movie you like. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't say I will ne never make a movie. So that was a gigantic effort. If you don't like that story. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're tune not gonna, out now. Or, or tune out now. We're not. We're not going to connect. You know, and I'm not a. I'm not a space guy or anything like that. But <laughs> God, that's a hell of a story. Anyway, I've been around biology a long time, and I hadn't heard any of this. I was like, How the heck can I not have heard any of this? And this is, man, what a wake up call that, you know, we're biologists of different kinds. Or, you know, we're segregated. We're in different buildings. We publish in different journals. I don't know what's going on in their field. And, you know, I, I run across this, and I'm like, man, this makes sense to me. And I, and then, you know, all this double negative logic, you see it in, like, what controls cells, and when it breaks down, that's cancer. And I see this logic in development, and, and I thought, wow, I wonder, maybe I should draw those parallels somewhere. Because when you know that logic, that is power. So medicine... You know, current medicine is really based on knowing these kind of molecular circuits in our bodies. And when they're broken or there's something, uh, some link is gone, you know, often the medicine is in there to kind of restore that link or the missing component. And he thought, well, in ecosystems, same thing. If they're broken when one of those components is out of whack or missing or something like that. And it's like, that's that's the parallel. And, that, and that's why I wrote the book. I, I, I wrote the book with trying to highlight those parallels to just say there's logic at these different scales in biology and understanding that logic is is the power i mean the nobel prizes 
a lot of them for, for medicine or physiology was uncovering that logic like in cholesterol metabolism or cancer cell growth and all this kind of stuff. And I run through those examples in the book. And I thought, well, if you want to know why, why ecology is important, planetary medicine is, 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 good, is based on ecology. And, and, we're, and we're still kind of recently discovering this, and it's not widely known about how these, some of these systems work. And then when I start looking at restoration examples, you know, bringing back a lake, even a Wisconsin lake that's right. been, uh, you know, that's, that's been uh, uh, polluted and, and, you know, full of bacteria or whatever, you got to know how this logic works and you got a chance to flip that lake to clearer water. Um, you want to bring back uh, trees in Yellowstone, you got to know that logic and so you can flip it. And then I was like, man, if I see, you know, this power in the real, in the, in the physical, big physical world is the same power in medicine. That, to me, you know, inspired such hope that, oh, wait a second, we are not helpless here. Just, you know, because a lot of the things that have happened in our forests or oceans, whatever, they're just accidents. Whatever things we decided to harvest, to eat or whatever, you know, that was just, you know, we didn't know any better. We didn't know that something might be disproportionately important or something like that. We just did these things. But now we'd like these things to be working a little bit better. And I'm like, gosh, this is doable. Doable and not necessarily expensive or high tech. Just get the right players back in the game. How gratifying and exciting to make connections across different scales or levels of analysis and to have those insights that result in, at least in certain ways, intuitive results. And I like that we're circling back to Keystone in terms of regulatory elements, the rest, because we can look at those different scales in terms of disproportionately yeah. more um, powerful players. Right. Yeah, you want to know how something works? Find the big guns. In my level of molecular biology, you're always trying to find the big guns. Who are the big guns of development? Like master regulatory genes. Those genes that when you broke them, put legs on the antenna? Yeah. Hello? That's a gene you want to understand. You know, there aren't many genes that can do that. You want to know a lot about them. So going after the big guns is often your way into a mystery because, you know, all sorts of parts of life are hard to access. It was the same thing in cancer. What we call oncogenes mm -hmm. were the genes that when mutated could cause cells to multiply out of control. There's a limited number of them. There's about 20,000 genes in our body, but there's... Yeah, maybe a few score oncogenes and another few score genes called tumor suppressors. You break either one of these and things go haywire. And you're like, so we don't need to even pay attention to a lot of other genes. Focus on these big guns. These are the guys that are repeatedly altered in cancers. And of course, that's where modern chemotherapy is all aiming. So that knowledge is power. Understanding that some things, or as Bob Payne put it, he said, you know, some animals are more equal than others. Right. So from George Orwell. From George Orwell. <laughs> some molecules are more equal than others. But I knew some molecules are more equal than others. Most of biochemistry and molecular biology and developmental biology is all based on that point. But I didn't know that some animals were more equal than others. And when I started seeing these stories, I was like, holy cow, how come I don't know this? And I'm a professional biologist. And then I started looking at you know, general people who are generally interested in nature or science, they hadn't heard these stories. And I'm like, this, sound, this is so important. How can this go for decades without really seeping into sort of collective awareness? And I'd just like to make a plug to all the underrepresented and underappreciated organisms out there. They may not be the keystones to our knowledge, but they have unknown properties and unknown uh, roles to play right. in and this is kind of almost the frightening thing to biologists, which is, you know, we can have this long conversation and pretend like we know a lot of stuff, but we don't. The and unfortunately, the unknowns and some of it's vanishing before we figure it out. In terms of magnitudes, yeah. we don't understand the diversity of life on our planet. No, we don't. We don't even understand, like, you know... We're so, for example, biased towards larger things, mm -hmm. especially things we can eat. But we don't, we don't really understand what microbes do and I, in, in some a large way, scale. In some small way, I forgive that. Because if you can have, say, maybe it's a keystone species. Yeah. If it's an umbrella species yeah. in conservation biology, yeah. then at least like a leopard or a jaguar 
covers a lot of terrain yeah. where my insects are, yeah. where that diverse, that real diversity is. Yeah. And so if conservation efforts can um, do something yeah. in the name of a jaguar, then presumably yeah. it can do something in the name of tens of millions of other and the most described species. And you might say, it, 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 maybe it does or it does. I don't know if it sounds radical, but when you go to a big place like Yellowstone National Park and decide to put wolves back in there, you're kind of conducting a pretty big experiment. You're right. taking one of the most precious pieces of remaining wilderness we have and saying, hey, let's chuck in these meat eaters and see what happens, okay? Yeah. And, and after 70 years absence, what right do we have to believe they'll do anything? Or if they do something, it's not horrific, right? Yes. And so that experiment was started in 1995, and the results were shocking, largely in the pleasing side. Yes. Um, and now elsewhere in the world, the reintroduction of large predators is being done because this is the group of all animals. This is the group that's been most persecuted. We don't like them. They're inconvenient. We killed them off. Or in the ocean, we ate them. And so now that we know that large predators matter so much for the communities in which, in which they live, and what are we going to do about this? And we got to sort of reacquaint ourselves with large predators and maybe find a new way to tolerate them. And so we could, oh, it's so tempting to go into discussions, debates about Pleistocene rewilding and all manner of discussions. We're running out of time, so I, I wanted to bring up two other topics with you, at least briefly. And one was really haunting for me, and that was both in Serengeti Rules book and especially in the documentary. And that was um, say, I believe it was Turbo, looking at a forest, yeah. and he had the keen eye and the insight and the long-time experience to know what was absent, what was lost, yeah. how lacking the biodiversity was. Right. And so a, a question I'd have would be, we think we're long-lived, but we're really short-lived uh, species. 100 years is really kind of the tops. We might extend that meager amounts longer. Yeah. We're short-sighted as a species. It's obvious with global climate change, we're not acting in the ways that some call extreme, but would be reasonable, rational, as we should. In our best interests. In our best interests. So what can we say, or how can we reach people effectively to have that vision of downgrading and know what we've lost and know how to rekindle it? Well, you know, I, I, I'm not going to tell you that I know that answer. I'll throw one out there that I, I try to reach folks with. And that is, you know, this isn't the way things were. It's not the way they have to be. And they can be better. And it's not about making the world prettier. You know, this is not about just aesthetics. This is not about, oh, keep your hands off my nature. Yeah. It's about making the world more functional. We've just unwittingly crippled some of these ecosystems, which we, in fact, depend upon. So, you know, there will be lots of conflict sometimes about the use of natural spaces. But with the number of folks we've got on the planet and our better understanding of biology, we understand how important these things are for fresh water and pollination and climate and storm protection and drought resistant. You know, I can go on and on and on. Then you're sort of like, you know, we need nature. And it's just making it more functional. And I, I think that unfortunately, you know, that not unfortunate, maybe it's fortunate even that some of the story of conservation was let's just go protect these places first and we'll figure it out later. Yes. So now we still have some places to, to, to work with. But it kind of got this hands-off mentality that nature was something to be preserved like, you know, artworks and that just, of course, is a natural conflict with the use of natural resources for, you know, whatever human purposes we want. And so... I think in these areas where there may be conflicts, it's, you know, finding some 
way to imagine a world that's more functional and serves us in the long run. Mm -hmm. That, um, and that's not easy to say. Look, in the long run, you know, you need that forest as a watershed mm -hmm. or as shade, mm -hmm. you know, or to prevent you know erosion of the river edge, right? And I think people are open to that. In the short term, if it's if it's an economic blow, it's very hard. And for some people in the world, they simply can't they can't sacrifice that economic uh, contribution. We you know we got to understand that we we obviously uh, live in a real different way than most of the world. So when we're not acting in our best long term interest, how do you get people to think together? How do you get some solidarity out of that? And goodness, anybody who knows anything about that, you know, step forward because, you know, we're obviously struggling with that. We're we're often just retreating into tribes and not listening to, right. to each other. I, I'll just give you a capsule summary. You know, there's stories all over the world of of people who are put in conflict and they, they weren't, neither is the source of the problem. A lot of the things taking place on our coastlines are, you know, Due to changes taking those coastlines that weren't created by fishermen and and conservationists, they were they're being created by you know changes in global climate. Mm -hmm. But these folks have to then work out well how can we keep make these you know fish stocks sustainable or shellfish or whatever and you know protect other things and protect things that themselves protect our coastlines and this this is the way we have to be if we're if we're just going to shout. You know, drill, baby, drill versus, you know, don't touch this. We're just in these camps that, that don't get anywhere. But I think, I think there's also, I, I, this is a little bit, it's optimism. It's short-term optimism for the moment. I don't know where it leads. I feel over the last couple of years, you know, we only know a tipping point when we passed it. But I think collectively, Society's recognizing that something's not right and that this is threatening. I don't know if it's the fires, the storms, you know, where are the bugs? Gosh, there's no snow this winter. Whatever it might be, mm -hmm. something's not right, and they can start to detect that in their physical landscapes and, you know, flowers or trees or critters or whatever it might be. And if you know it's going to change even more, then... Then, then I think maybe I, I mean I don't want to raise people's anxieties because there's enough screaming, you know, there's enough screaming of of terror and gloom and doom. But we've been a bit paralyzed, and I think to get off that, we got to first sort of feel like yeah, this is kind of real, and it's in my my self interest to pay attention. And in to. By gum, we're going to end on an optimistic note. <laughs> and at the end of Serengeti Rules, you have lessons we can learn from. And one of those is be optimistic. Yeah. And this is a difficult era to be optimistic in when it comes to global climate change and politicized movements that make no sense. But do you see, let's see, how do I word this? Is the greatest vehicle for change, as some have suggested, to give actors something to do, something to believe in, somewhere to move, rather well, than to be a doomsayer, period? Oh, yeah. I think, look, the do I don't think we need the doomsaying now. <laughs> Everybody knows. The headlines are everywhere, right? If, and if, if you, you know, maybe even have sort of a firsthand feel of it. Um, the doomsaying is like the first thing. It's like, hey, there's a problem here. There's a problem. I think we all know there's a problem here. Mm. My view, in fact, the storytellers I work with back in Maryland and the storytellers we collaborate with across the world, we ask the question, what can be done? So I'm not going to spend time making a film about how we're going to hell in a handbasket. Mm-hmm. I want to know what could be done. And in fact, there's such a symmetry in the reporting there. Um, we did a series, uh, we, we supported a series that the Associated Press produced this past fall 
um, called What Can Be Saved. And it was a deliberate attempt on the part of the Associated Press to go highlight people who for a year, you know, are working year after year after year, restoring places, protecting places, et cetera. They don't make headlines. Headlines are made when you dump a bunch of mine waste in the river. Headlines are when somebody gets indicted, right? Headlines is when somebody does something awful. But the people who are working to regrow coral in Jamaica, right, um, when do they get the headlines? So, so the Associated Press made a deliberate effort to go out and find these stories, which are everywhere in the world of what can be done and people not just they don't need like naked optimism i'm not sure that word that feels you know pollyanna oh everything's going to be okay real optimism comes from saying oh look at that look what they've done and for me so let me let me make a confession here as we run out of time in 2014 when i went to the serengeti i partly went out of fear that if i didn't go soon i wouldn't be able to see it and I waited a long time in my life to get there. <laughs> and I started sort of on a quest of what is re what really, what, what shape is the world really in? And I started talking to ecologists who I didn't generally know, but even going around the world with them. And I just kind of had an answer for myself. Is there hope? Or, or am, I just, am I just blowing smoke? Hmm. And then I get to Gorongosa, which in the year 2000 was empty devastated civil war civil ravaged. war and poaching over more than 20 years eliminated more than 95 percent of the large animal populations given up for dead i'm going there in two weeks again for another visit really and in 20 years it is a unbelievable transformation take home point of this take home point of the lecture i'm giving tonight take home point of serengeti rules nature is resilient Given a chance, protection, habitat, time, it's amazing what can happen. Species can come roaring back. Habitats can come roaring back. You talk about us being a short-sighted and short-lived species. The good news is it can come roaring back on a time scale that we can watch it. If I said, well, if you do this in 100 years, things might be better, you're like, eh, <laughs> I'm not around. If I show you what happened in Gorongosa in just a decade, it'll blow your mind blew my mind and I thought oh my gosh there is so much power kind of latent in nature given a chance uh, these places can come back faster than you really would imagine and it's not even necessarily that expensive um, and actually compared to what we spend money on it's it's a drop in the buck we almost can't afford not to do this kind of work if we thought that these places were empty and sterile and done for well yeah but they're not they're not. With a little bit of care, it's amazing what can happen. And that's why I wrote the book, because I was like, this is doable. This is doable. It, we, it is not too late to change the road we're on. I've seen too many places. Now, even by, you know, five years later, I've seen a lot more places in the world that are, that are doing better. So um, it's not everywhere. <laughs> there's, there's, there's disasters in places. It's going to be a very patchy picture. But it's not going to be uniformly disaster. Dr. Sean Carroll, profound pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks so much, Barry. Thank really you. Appreciate it.